Welcome to the Real Python Podcast. This is episode 123. How does a code completion tool work? What is an abstract syntax tree and how is it created in Python? How does an AST help you write programs and projects that inspect and modify your Python code? This week on the show, Meridev Luff, co-founder of Anvil, shares his PyCon talk, Building a Python Code Completer. Meridev talks about his experience building a code completion engine for the Anvil platform. The conversation leads us to discuss how Python parses the code you type. We examine tokenization, abstract syntax trees, and how parsing has changed in Python. We cover additional projects you can explore once you have a tool that inspects the Python code you're writing. Join us as we dive into multiple rabbit holes of research and exploration. This episode is brought to you by CData Software the easiest way to connect Python with data. SQL access to more than 250 cloud applications and data sources. All right, let's get started. The Real Python Podcast is a weekly conversation about using Python in the real world. My name is Christopher Bailey, your host. Each week, we feature interviews with experts in the community and discussions about the topics, articles, and courses found at realpython.com. After the podcast, join us and learn real-world Python skills with a community of experts at realpython.com. Hey, Meridiv, welcome back. Hello, it's great to be here. Yeah, it was so nice to talk to you back in episode 63. We were talking about creating web applications using only Python, working with Anvil. Then we finally got to meet up <laughs> at PyCon 2022 in person. Yes, I have owed you a drink for a very long time, and it was lovely to be able to deliver. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that was great. And you also had a talk that you gave there talking about some new things that you were working on within the Anvil platform. And your talk was about building a Python code completer, um, and you were doing that yourself inside of Anvil. Sure. So I, uh, this, is, this talk was about a subject I really love, because it was, it was about code completion, which is one of those things that almost every programmer uses. It's that little pop-up box you see in your editor offering to autocomplete you know, your variable names, your identifiers, and so on. And we, almost all of us, use it, but a lot of us don't actually know what's under the hood. You know, it's magic to us. Yeah. And for reasons that, you know, I will, I will get into if we like about, you know, why Anvil specifically needed this, I ended up having to build one of these things myself. And what that meant is I got to work out how they actually work. And it turns out these things are really cool. They are in this magic overlap between things that feel like magic and things that are actually really simple. And so uh, in, in the talk you saw, I talked about like why code completion is a thing and then how it works. And I'm not going to try and do this on a podcast, but I then built a code completer live on stage <laughs> in about five minutes just to prove that it wasn't actually that hard. Yeah, so that, that, it was a really fun talk. Yeah, we'll definitely include a link to the to the YouTube talk there. Sure. All right, well, I, 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 let, me, let me try and explain the basics then. The goal of code completion is to answer the question, what might the programmer type next? So you're, if you're building a programming environment, you're, you're building an editor like VS Code or PyCharm, 
what you want is to have some idea of what might happen next where the cursor is, because then you can offer these pop-up auto-completions. And what that means you need to do is to understand this half-written program that's sitting there in your text editor. This is a pretty daunting task. If you're thinking about it as, well, I've got this string of text, and somewhere in it is a cursor, and I've got to work out what they might type next, because that means understanding the program there in the middle of writing. You know, if what they might type next might be a local variable, well, is that cursor in a place where a variable would be an appropriate thing to type next? What local variables are defined in that program? And if you wanted to, like, step through your, your text character by character to work that out, that would be... Uh, not quite impossible, but incredibly difficult. But if you think about it, that's actually pretty much exactly the same challenge that you have if you're writing a programming language. Because something like, you know, the Python interpreter, when you write your Python myscript.py, it reads in that file, myscript.py, and it doesn't go through it character by character as it executes, you know, reading each line as it goes. That would be a very inefficient way of, of running your code. It, it also solves this problem. It takes that code, it takes that string of bytes and turns it into a more useful representation. So what it does, it's got a piece of code and it called a parser. And it will feed that string to the parser. The parser takes this string, uh, walks across it, and produces a tree of objects representing your program. So, you know, instead of the series of characters with, you know, some number of spaces and and comments and DEF and, you know, some function name and then brackets, it instead has like an object that says there's a function definition. Its name is my function. It has, you know, these three arguments, X, Y, and Z, and it has, you know, three statements inside it. And the first one is a to a function called print. And the second one is an if statement. And, you know, here's its expression and some, some statements in the if branch and some statements in the else branch. And that is just a tree of objects. And that is much, much, much easier to work with. Yeah, definitely. Because, uh, yeah, you, you can write a loop over this. So, and that's what a compi- what the Python interpreter does. So it reads this stuff in, gets an AST, abstract syntax tree, and then walks over this tree, generating bytecode in, in Python's case. Uh, but any compiler works the same way. You know, you, you have C compilers that go out generating, you know, intermediate language to translate into machine code because they've transformed the program into a format that's use- that's easier to work with. And as a developer of code completion, we can do the same thing. We can use this technology. If you just take your half-written program with a cursor in the middle of it, you replace the cursor with a random special symbol, and then you feed that to the parser, you'll get back an AST that describes this half-written program, but somewhere in this half-written program will be your cursor. Okay. And then what you can do is you can walk over this AST recursively, and as you pass every piece of the program, you build up a representation of what's going on. So, you know, you read through, you read a variable declaration, you know, x equals 5, or rather assign the constant number 5 to the variable x because it's been passed to that level of abstraction by this point. You, you pass past that and you go, oh, well, I know there's a local variable called x, and I know that it's an integer. 
and then you you pass into this oh this death function and then once you're walking through the statements inside that function well now you know hey the arguments to this function they exist as local variables and so by the time you reach the cursor you know what's going on in your program you know what position the cursor's in you know you know is this a place where it would be sensible to put a variable and if so you know all the variables that are in scope at that point in the program and so you can offer a contextually sensible set of completions yeah and that is that's the fundamental basis of code completion you take the code that's running that's half edited in the editor you feed it to a parser and then you use that parser to work out what's going on in the code and what's going on around the cursor. So I have a couple questions that I wanted to kind of yeah go on highlight in there. The first is you use the term uh, recursively, which to me feels like it can have lots of different kind of interesting meanings as far as programming concerned. In this case, you're saying it's going to con- recursively or repeatedly look at the code and sort of refresh yeah. what the tree looks like. Oh, well, I was talking about it in the simple sense, in that you've got like, you've got this, it's literally, it's a tree-shaped object, so you've got a module object, and inside it's got a list, it's literally a Python list. If you feed, so the Python has this amazing thing, it exposes its parser to us as programmers. So if you import AST in any Python program, you have access to this. So you can call ast.parse and pass it in a string of Python source code, and it will give you back a code object. And what you'll get back is is an ob- object of type module. And it has a uh, attribute called body, which is a Python list of other code objects, uh, of the statements in this module. And you know, if you define a function in this module, one of them is going to be a def function. And that will also have a body that has a list of statements. And so when I mean recursively walk down, I mean literally you'll write a function that will you know, iterate through these um, you know, the statements in your module, and then when it encounters something that, that itself has statements inside it, like you know, an if statement or a function okay. definition, it drills into them. Yeah, it drills in, and then it just calls itself again, calls itself recursively to walk into those. Okay, cool. And then I feel like one of the steps that it's going to need to do in this process of structurally creating this tree mm-hmm. is define you know what objects are what you know like uh sort of i guess the term that i've seen because i went down a whole rabbit hole (laughs) after (laughs) after your talk and then into this whole thing and i I actually um i definitely do suggest you if you're interested in this stuff the abstract syntax trees the ast documentation from python.org is really good and it actually as you're talking about this stuff to have it open while we're talking about it might be a kind of cool thing unless you're driving to kind of look at and you could kind of see it's you know really well done inside there but i think part of it is it's going to have to kind of create these sort of tokens is a, a tokenizer part of that process then? oh gosh oh okay let's let, let's 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 do this let's talk about parsing so pre- i just talked about parsing as this black box a parser is a program or a chunk of code that you know you you give it a string and it gives you back an ast now of course there's a lot of machinery inside that and in fact the really cool thing about a parser is that most parsers were never written by a human being okay so instead if you go to the python documentation you can find something called a grammar file yeah and that is that's a, a text file specifying everything that could make up a valid 
Python program. So, you know, it will say, well, an if statement is Python in Python is made of the word if, then an expression, yeah. then a colon, and then a block of Python code, and then maybe an else statement. Sorry, may- maybe the word else, then a colon, then another block. Maybe the word elif, then a colon, then another block, then elif again or else or nothing. Yeah. And you will find like reams and reams and reams of this stuff describing every every building block of the Python language, every way you could possibly put together a valid Python program. And you feed that into something called a parser generator. And that parser generator spits out code for a parser. So, and th- this has been you know, in the news recently because Python recently got a new one of these. We moved from yeah. the previous uh, parser <laughs> to something called the, the Do you know the name generator. of the original one? Uh, it was, uh, I don't think it even had a name. It was just called the Python parser. It's literally called PGen. It's called PGen. PGen. <laughs> Parser generator. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like 30 years ago. I have a link to the talk where Guido was, you know, describing his yep. experimentations. And uh, this is like from 2019 as he's, you know, thinking about let's move toward the peg parser. And it, I was like, okay, so he just, they just were calling it PGen, which I think is great. So, okay, so well, let, let, let's think about things in terms of the, the, the classic parser then, you know, the, 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 the original version that Guido was talking about in 2019. Yeah. The process, the actual process, if you break it down, is you take this string of, of stuff and then you feed it into something called uh, the, the tokenizer that you, that you were talking about. Okay. And what that does is it breaks the string up into chunks that are slightly more semantically meaningful than just a string of bytes. It, it will, you know, there could be like variable identifiers or like a, a, a quote, you know, string literal. Or in, in Python, actually, the tokenizer is quite clever and it also understands like indents and dedents because, of course, white space means things in Python. Uh, and so it will, the to- it's actually the tokenizer's job to count how many spaces you have at the start of your line and then, then emit this series of tokens. So instead of this, this file of bytes, you get, well, you know, this has the word print, then an open parenthesis token, then a string literal token that has this contents, then a closed parenthesis to- uh, token, then an if token, then, uh, you know, some other token, then a colon token, then a an indent, and then you know some series of things. So it, it it's sort of pre-processed, yeah, your text into some series of objects, but it's still like a flat linear sequence. C data software connect, integrate, and automate your data from Python or any other application or tool. At C data, we simplify connectivity between all of the applications and data sources that power business, making it easier to unlock the value of data. Our SQL-based connectors streamline data access, making it easy to access real-time data from on-premise or cloud databases, SaaS, APIs, NoSQL, and big data. Check out cdata.com to learn more. Can I ask you a quick question on yeah. on what what you were building inside of Anvil, this tool that you were creating? Yes, is that tokenizer? Is that a separate step? Because like a common way that people would see that maybe in an IDE mm-hmm. is that it will start to just color code your your 
your text as you go. It's like, oh, I know what Python is. Yeah. And it'll identify and, and start highlighting that stuff. Is Was that a separate thing that was created? Oh, my goodness. Okay, yes. So, <laughs> it's an Anvil specifically. For those who have not gone back and listened to the previous episode with me, shame on you. Uh, but also, <laughs> quick summary of Anvil. So this is what we're talking about. Anvil is an online environment for creating web applications entirely in Python. So it's got like a drag and drop editor for building user interfaces, but it, and it's also then got a code editor and you write Python code some Python code that runs in the web browser, some Python code that runs on the server, and you, know, you can call functions in one from the other, and then you have a built-in database, and you can deploy it all, and you don't need to know HTML, CSS, JavaScript, React, Redux, Webpack, all that stuff. You can build a web application, even if all you know is Python. Now, this means a couple of things. One, it means that I maintain an online code editor, which has some of this stuff like syntax highlighting that you're talking about. Right. And another is that this is why I got interested in all of this in the first place, because uh, we also have our own code completer that runs as part of this editor. But the, so the thing you're asking about is if you're in this online editor and, you know, as you, as you're typing the, you know, if you type the word for, then the editor will sort of syntax highlight that. Yeah. And that is, yes, you're right. A way this can happen. And many editors do this in many different ways. But a way this can happen is you feed the what's in the editor to a tokenizer really fast as people are typing. Sometimes the editor component actually has like a rudimentary parser built into it. So it has some sense of what's going on in your code, but it probably isn't a full parser, probably doesn't actually generate an AST, but it can go part partway through the parsing process. Okay. So, you know, it knows about your indents and dedents. And so, you know, when you hit enter, it can work out how far, you know, when you type if X colon enter, it knows enough about Python to know that you should be, you know, four spaces in on the next line, that kind of thing. Okay. It's kind of a, it's like more, slightly more than a tokenizer, but maybe like the first half of a parser usually. All right. Uh, but let, let's let's but we're we're going off in all sorts of different directions. Let's walk through how a how a full fat parser works. Okay. <laughs> so so you you get your you get your text. You fed it to a tokenizer. So now you've got this string of tokens, and you know you've usually by this point you've omitted the the comments and stuff. Now you have a job of turning this flat string of tokens into a tree that people can use. And in the classical world, what you will then do is you will do the parse step. So the parser generator will have produced a machine that you can give a stream of tokens to, and it will produce a tree of objects representing the code that it's just been fed. But a general parser like that, a table-driven parser, doesn't actually know about the semantics of your programming language. And so it will produce what's called a concrete syntax tree. Okay. So this is uh, really quite an unpleasant thing because it probably, it, it doesn't know that this is a function definition with statements in it. It just knows that this is this thing of this type that you you happen to have assigned the word function to, but I don't really know about this. And, you know, here's this sequence of tokens that I parse into this sort of thing. And then you would write another piece of code in, in the C Python, this was called ast.c, which went over this concrete syntax tree, worked out kind of what was going on in the Python program, and 
then generated an abstract syntax tree. Let me give you a, a, a concrete ha-ha example. So it, when you parse like a raise statement, there are there, there are a few different ways to write raise in Python. You can just, you know, raise and then type error. Yeah. And that's it. That's a complete statement. Or you can like raise and then type error brackets, brackets, and or, you know, in, in instantiate the exception object. Or you can actually have raise in like various forms with like commas between them. And in the concrete syntax tree, those would all be represented differently because your table-driven parser doesn't really understand that the, the differences between those things. It, it just knows there's three different ways of parsing this thing, and so it'll offer you all three of them. And the ast.c had the responsibility of looking at all these different ways you could write a raise statement and sort of homogenizing them, okay. unifying them into a sent in, into an AST node that was just the raise statement that had Python meaningful semantic attributes. Nice. So that's the, that's the old way things used to go. So you took your text, you tokenized it into tokens, then you passed it into a contract concrete syntax tree, and then you ran the AST fire, I'm sure it has a proper name, over it to generate the AST nodes. And then, and then you went on and compiled it as normal. But what Python moved to recently was a new parser, which is, it, it does two things. One is that it, it, it's a different strategy for doing parser generators, which just has a, has a different way of, of, of approaching this stuff, which I'm yeah. not going to try to explain because uh, explain table-driven parsers. Well, I, I think I could do like a my own short, short, short version of it that I kind of... Oh, go on, hit me. You know, recently watched some talks on it and so forth. The, the original parser, the LL1 parser, focused kind of on like one token at a time. And part of the reason was that was like, you know, the earliest design in that sense. Mm-hmm. When... Guido kind of came back and started to see like this idea. He he decided to take a break from Python for a little bit there. He stepped down as the BDFL and said, I'm going to take a little break, right? And he, during his retirement, couldn't stay away, I guess, <laughs> and started uh-huh. really in, in getting interested in the idea of this idea of, uh, well, what's a different way that we could parse? And computers have changed. You know, it's been 27 years, almost 30 years at the time he was looking at it. Memory is no longer quite the the issue that it used to be. You know, parsing a text file is not that big a deal comparatively to like, you know, graphics and all these other things that computers are doing now. And so what if the thing could look further ahead and be able to kind of look deeper into the context? And so now it has, with this new methodology, instead of going individual token by token, it can, I guess it can have infinite look ahead is the the concept of it. Yeah, that's which that, is that's a really good wild. Yeah, and that, that's a good summary. Go on, sorry, finish. Okay, yeah, and so that 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 has helped a lot with all these other really kind of cool things that sort of have been unlocked in that the grammar used to really get stuck on certain words. So the idea of like the new the case switch statement. <laughs> oh, yeah, the match statement. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, the match statement before, like, the idea of a case or these other kinds of words potentially could yeah. be given a different token or, you know, like, potentially could have an issue and so forth. And so now it's able to kind of read ahead into that. And the probably the coolest thing that I've found come out of it, and you know, as far as someone getting into Python and learning about it, is this ability to read ahead and kind of figure out through the syntax errors 
and what were you trying to do potentially syntactically as opposed to just like hard stop like Mm -hmm. boom syntax error this doesn't make sense it could kind of maybe read ahead and say were you trying to do this and some really interesting stuff happening there that you know pablo glundasalgado and he's kind of leading on some of it and i just kind of found out that he was helping in some of these explorations with guido on it and so anyways a lot of neat stuff and i'll definitely include links for all that stuff if you want to geek out and dive into it but uh, that that peg parser i guess was introduced in 3.9 kind of late mm-hmm. almost like in a testing mode and then in 3.10 it's the parser you know so basically everything going forward 3.10 3.11 and so forth is all peg and allows all these new kind of cool functionalities and hopefully might be part of why we can speed up too which Maybe that's a separate conversation generally. So I, I think that is probably a separate conversation because unfortunately that's all this far side of the ST. But I, my goodness, you were not kidding when you said you went down the rabbit hole. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's been fun. <laughs> oh, yeah. My brain hurts a little bit. I was, I was telling you offline before we started, I, I started to dig into like, you know, okay, what is an abstraction tree and, you know, versus yeah. uh, this and so forth. And yeah. I, I, I'm, Part of it ended up being that this whole thing where I feel like I was reading legal contracts with all these big words that that nobody's defining for you anywhere, and you have to go and find them. And I'm like, okay, EBNF. Uh, oh gosh, yes, <laughs> stuff like that. Extended backus nar form, obviously. Uh, yeah, yes, absolutely. I think <laughs> I, I, I think it, it is true that some of this stuff can be abstruse. But I think one of the things I was really trying to get across in the talk is that it's actually doesn't have to be this scary no no i mean compared to even the english language like yeah you can you can read all the grammar well, on a page which is pretty cool no and not just that it's that you can play with it you can import ast and uh, ast.parse like a simple python program like in your repl right now yeah probably you know without pausing this podcast for more than 30 seconds <laughs> and yeah there are actually you were showing me for the show. Um, yeah, yeah, a this wonderful um, Python so, AST. So yeah. Python dash AST dash Explorer dot com. Um, you can see it, you know, as you yeah. type Python in one box, it it basically is building it on the right, which is really neat. Yeah. Um, and then there's examples in there too. So yeah, and again, like I, I would like don't just look at that. Like really do. I know. I, I feel like something something powerful happens when you actually write a program that does that yourself yeah there are like and um, once you realize that you can have programmatic access to what your code is doing there are suddenly so many projects that you get now can take on like building a code completer seems impossible until you realize oh wait i can use a parser and like python has it there at your fingertips that there's so many so much fun you can have once you actually pick this tool up and start playing with it yourself yeah to kind of get back to your parser as it there's a couple questions i have about it one oh, yeah, is sure. is about scope and kind of you, you you kind of navigate a lot of that in your talk which i think is great mm-hmm. and then also kind of i don't know what to call it other than sort of the data structure that's going to hold these options if you will for the code completer yeah. to put in and and maybe we could talk yeah. a little bit about those things all right Okay, well, in which case, if we're going back, we should probably finish the train of thought we were on originally, which is like the difference between how <laughs> oh, the, the peg, peg parser the, works yeah. and, and, and the classic one. And I really, the, the only salient difference I wanted to call out among the other great features of the peg parser, of which you gave a kind of summary, like basically a peg parser is quite easy to understand. It just like 
it, it, it's a recursive, hey, see how far I can go down this branch. Like at any given point, there are a few things that you could be writing and just like go down each branch until you find some reason you can't get to the end of that branch. And then if not backtrack and, and try everything else, it's, it's kind of like it's a depth first search on all the possible ways to interpret the sequence of, of, of tokens in your program. It's, it, it's really cool. But the other really cool thing about the peg parser is that it doesn't actually go via concrete syntax tree. It goes straight to AST. Oh, okay. So this parser generator goes from your tokens to spitting your AST straight out, which I think is you know, really quite cool, especially as... So I'm I'm also one of the maintainers of the Sculpt Python to JavaScript compiler, which is obviously that's the Python implementation that Anvil uses to run uh, Python on the front end of the web browser. And that means I maintain a Python implementation, which means I deal with the concrete to AST compiler all the time. And it, it, it is going to be so great. We, we are also adopting the peg parser into Sculpt. It's not done yet, but it's going to be. And it's going to be so much nicer when just the AST drops out fully formed. Oh, that's cool. It, it just really is a quality of life improvement for people who are working on the, on the interpreter. I bet. Um, I wonder if a lot of people think that, you know, that... I, I hope so. I, I guess with your, yeah, that you're building these tools and so you can kind of see it up front. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah, I mean, likewise, that's going to be helping helping people on the CPython team do their jobs. But again, like, you know, the easier their jobs are, uh, the more fun they can have building things like match statements and the walrus operator and yeah. hopefully making Python faster. Yeah. All right, so um, we were at... Sorry, before we dive into there, you asked me about... Scope and oh, um, yeah, and and then like sort of yeah, a data so, structure to yeah. hold these uh, potential so completables. <laughs> so this is this is the second part, and this is actually the fun challenge of writing a, a code completer, because you now have this AST, you're walking over it, and I've I've waved my hands and I've said you're building up a representation of what's going on as you walk your way through the program, but you need to decide how you're going to do that. And in my talk, I, I built a very simple completer. I mean, I only had five minutes. I was on stage. Um, I, the, the completer I had uh, used a set object to hold the names of all the variables that were in scope. Okay. And the only thing it could complete was what variables might I be using. And so that was pretty easy. Every time you, you, know, you walked into a function, you made a copy of the stuff on, of the scope on the outside. And then to that copy, you added all the function arguments. And then as you were walking through the, you know, the, the function body, when you saw a new assignment, you added it to that inner scope. And then once you were done with the function, as you sort of returned from that, returned from that nested call, you just dropped that scope on the floor and, and, and there was nothing else to do with it. That's fine if all you're doing is seeing what local variables are in scope. But actually, you want to do a lot more than that. You want to know some stuff about types. Yeah. Now, when, when I say the word types, you might be thinking strongly typed languages like, like Rust, uh, or you might be thinking about Python's typing module. And those are kind of type hints. But I think I really encourage you, if you're thinking about things from the perspective of a code completer, you should think about types in the academic sense, which is everything we know about what could be in what what this value might be. Mm. So yes, you could know that for sure that the variable x currently contains an instance of the string class. And so if you type x dot, you should probably offer 
all of the attributes that you know that string instances have, you know, to lower and trim and so on. Right. Okay. And that's that's a simple version of type information. But you can record a lot more than that. You can know, you know, that this is well, this was actually a string constant defined here. Or you can know, I mean, the classic one that I talk about is dictionaries. So you can have two dictionaries that have different sets of keys. And those are both going to be instances of the dict class in Python. As far as the Python interpreter is concerned, they have the same type. If you call type on one dict and type on the other, you will get returned the same object, the dict class. But from the perspective of a human writing code, those are two different types of dict. You, you can you know, use square bracket lookups to look up different keys in each of them. And if you are building, say, code completion, it might be useful to, you know, if somebody types my dict and then the left square bracket, you want to know what uh, options to offer them. And you might want to offer them which, you know, you'll offer them the keys that you know that dictionary has. And so what you need to store is type information about that variable that is more extensive than just what Python type that value will have, or just, you know, the Python type hints of that variable. So you have this challenge. You want to store basically arbitrary amounts of information about this, these values, and you want to be able to update them as well. Because if you think about how Python, if you're writing a Python class, you define what attributes that class has in the init method. Okay. Yeah. In everything in Python is so dynamic. You know, if I have, if I'm writing a, you know, a, a class for potato, and you know, it has its its attributes of the weight in grams and the temperature in degrees, I define that by having a, the dunder init method go self dot weight equals weight, self dot temperature equals temperature, and that's that's really the only way I ever say instances of the potato class have these two attributes. And so what that means is that your autocompleter has got to recognize that. Mm. And so what the, the structure that we ended up in, with is we did something similar to what you'll see me do in that talk, which is that we have this recursive call. Every block of code is handled by an invocation of a function. There's a function called walk block that you know walks a series of statements in a block. And then if it encounters a sub block, like inside an if statement or a function definition or a try catch, sorry, try accept, this is Python, it will sort of recursively call another walk block inside it. But we also stored the top level module scope uh, which as a dictionary, so a dictionary of like the name in that scope, variable name to an object that represents the type. Okay. And then that object has lots and lots and lots of attributes. Sure, it has you know, it, it has a name of hey you know what what the Python class is, but it's also yeah and what attributes that class has atters, but it also has information like. If this is a, a you know a, a thing that you can look up in uh, with, with square brackets, so you can call get item on it, what items are in it? What are the types of those items? Yeah. Okay. If this thing is a function, what arguments does it take? Can you call it? What arguments does it take if you call it? What type does it return? You know, if you call this thing, what type will it return? We then these things are are mutable objects because as you walk through, let's let's imagine we have a simple program that defines the class potato, and then in, you know creates a new instance of that, 
and, and then prints its temperature. Okay. Well, then as you walk through this, this program from top to bottom, the first thing you'll see is the class definition. And you will walk through that. Inside that, you'll find a definition of the init function. And so your top-level module scope now has a, you know, it has a class called potato in it. And that potato, its scope now has this init function in it. And as you walk through the init function, you have to know that I am walking the init function of the potato class, and self is an instance of potato. And then when you type, I can't believe I chose potato for this. I'm just, the word <laughs> potato is going to lose all meaning here. It's okay. <laughs> when you type self.weight equals weight, yeah. you have to know, hey, this is a, like a dynamic addition of an attribute to the potato class. I'm going to mutate my representation of that to go, hey, I now have learned something new. This thing has an attribute called weight. And you know, and it's an integer, possibly. Yeah. So you have to you have to make up your own data structure. And I don't know I don't know for sure what other completion systems use. There are a bunch of completion systems out there. Some of them are proprietary, like the, you know, the uh, actually no open source, like the uh, completers built into PyCharm. There's yeah, various code completers used by VS Code, and there's one called Jedi, which is a cool Python code completion package. Everybody does it slightly differently because everybody wants to represent represent what's going on in their code in a different way. But you've got to make this decision. How do I represent a language as dynamic as Python? Yeah. How do I how do I guess? Python is full of dynamism. <laughs> yeah, it comes up all the time. <laughs> you can dynamically add extra attributes to, 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 to objects. You can yeah. dynamically, you can dynamically decide whether you define a function. Like you can put the function definition inside an if statement. That is perfectly legitimate behavior. And so your code completer is always looking at your code and guessing. Yeah, and you think about it needing to be dynamic. This code completer needs to be extremely dynamic. <laughs> like, it's having to change stuff. Well, it's, it's not just dynamic. It also just doesn't know what's going to happen. Yeah. Uh, there is this, there's this theorem in computer science. It's uh, the halting problem, Turing incompleteness. The idea is it is provably impossible to understand what will happen when you run a program by looking at it. Yeah. If you're not running the program, you do not know what it will do. And even if you're halfway through running the program, you don't know what it will do. Which means that your code completer doesn't actually know for sure whether some piece of code that you know adds an extra attribute onto the potato class will run every time, sometimes, or never. And so it has to make a guess yeah. about when these attributes will actually exist on various instances of potato. And that's okay. It's guessing all the time because and it doesn't matter. Well, it, it, it matters to get it right. But if you're building an autocompleter, I like to say it's, it's like making the graphics for a computer game. You don't need perfect physical accuracy. What you need is to make the human in front of the computer happy. Right. So when you're faced with a language as dynamic as Python, it's not just that you have to be dynamic yourself. You have to acknowledge you don't know exactly what the program's going to do. And you have to approximate. You have to guess. This week, I want to shine a spotlight on another real Python video course. 
Each version of Python adds new features to the language. And for Python 3.8, the biggest change was the addition of assignment expressions. This course is titled Python Assignment Expressions and Using the Walrus Operator. It's based on a real Python tutorial by previous guest Gerarna Hiela. And in the course, instructor Darren Jones shows you how to identify the walrus operator and its meaning, avoid repetitive code by using assignment expressions, convert between code using the walrus operator and code using other assignment methods, how to understand the impacts on backward compatibility when using the operator, and how to use appropriate style within your assignment expressions. We're a couple years past the controversy surrounding the introduction of assignment expressions, and you're likely seeing their use in code more often. I think it's a good investment of your time to learn how to take advantage of this operator and how to understand its use in the code you may review. Like most of the video courses on RealPython, the course is broken into easily consumable sections. You get code examples for the techniques shown, and all courses have a transcript, including closed captions. Check out the video course. You can find a link in the show notes, or you can find it using the search tool on realpython.com. When you went through this process of, you know, thinking about diving into this, mm -hmm. uh, was it the first time you've worked on a code completer? And then also, did you go and look at other systems? Or you said some of them were open source. Were they useful to look at? Or was that something that, that you approached when you did this project? I... I'm not going to say I didn't take a glance, but it was mostly a from-scratch implementation. Yeah. Um, I think part of this is, as you alluded to, in how you want to represent uh, your types. Because when we, we were building a code computer specifically for Anvil, and we were doing that for a couple of reasons. One of them, sure, was that this is a web-based editor, and so... There's just not a lot of time between keystrokes when, when a programmer is, is really going for it. You don't have 300 milliseconds to go back to the to some web server, do some code completion, and come back with a set of possibilities. Your, your programmer is like three words on by the time you've, you've come back to them. Yeah, it goes back to your, your computer graphics thing there. Like yeah. If the controls are going to yeah, be that janky. floaty, you're just like, ugh. No, it's not going to bother. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. And, it's, and crucially, it is more important to get the float controls non-floaty than to get that perfect iridescent sheen off the protagonist's head. Right. So we went, okay, well, so that's one reason for writing something that would run in the, in the web browser, which means we couldn't use something off the shelf like Jedi, because that's expecting to see a set of files in a file system. Okay. Um, so that's one reason for it. But the other reason that I think is more interesting is that we wanted to build a code completer for the same reasons that we wanted to build Anvil itself. Anvil's goal is to solve this problem where you have to write, you know, SQL to talk to your database, Python on the server side, munge everything over HTTP, write, you know, HTML and JavaScript and CSS and make them all work together with all sorts of frameworks. Right. The graphical user interface stuff, all <laughs> yeah. that stuff, yeah. What that means is that in a typical program, you don't actually know what the database is going to give you because your, your code editor doesn't understand the SQL you just fed the database, so it doesn't know what kind of data it's coming back. When you're writing your front end, you've just hit an HTTP endpoint. Your code editor doesn't know what shape of data is going to come back. But because Anvil's an integrated environment, 
you, it, you write the server and the client code, which means that when you call server code from the client, we, we've seen that Python function, we've parsed it, we know what it's going to give back. And so we wanted the code completion to re reflect that. Likewise, there's a built-in database. And so when you query the database, you get back these, these live Python objects and you know use square brackets to look up the columns. And then you can pass these objects from server to client. And again, they, they come out and you, you, can, you can look up the columns on them, you can search them, you can update them live. And... That meant that this, the code completer for this system wanted to have a really good idea of the types of things, deep typing, as I say, it's more than just the Python class, of, oh, hey, this is actually a database row from the X table. And so it will therefore have these columns of these types. And then if I ask for you know, a restricted column view that's only got these three columns, well, that will then give me a a new table type object that when I search, it'll only give me these three columns. And so having that kind of, uh, the level of information about type information in excess of what Python's classes or the typing module would give you is something that, you know, it's really good to have a custom autocomplete. Yeah, it's a lot of assistance you're providing. Yeah. It was a couple of years ago at PyCon, we were talking to the VS Code um, guys on the on the Microsoft stand, and they were saying, hey, you should, you know, you should totally like have a VS Code plugin for Anvil or, you know, write stubs for it. And then we showed them some of what the, what our code completer does, and they went, oh, that would be difficult in our architecture. <laughs> like, yeah, <laughs> we built it for this purpose. So, yeah, obviously. It's unique, yeah. There, yeah. there are things where those code computers are more advanced, more complicated than ours. But one advantage we got is our representation of this internal state of types has a lot of space for knowing about things like, you know, what components are on your screen, being able to work out, you know, when you've built a user interface in Anvil, the class that represents that page has a set of attributes depending on what objects you've dragged and dropped onto your screen. And so it can live update you know, the, the types of those objects, the types of, you know, if you have a re repeating chunk of user interface and you feed it a, a set of database rows, it can look through your code, then look through your UI definition and work out, oh, well, when I'm editing that the chunk of code that represents each, you know, each row from this database, then the self.item, which is this this element from the list, is an instance of that. It is an instance of that row from the database. And having having it tightly coupled, meaning that we can design our data structures to reflect the stuff that's really important for building user interfaces in Anvil was a thing that was really valuable for us. Yeah, totally. Like one of the things that makes me think about that, you know, you have this luxury of it all kind of being together and knowing what the parts are and the database is part of the system and, and so forth as opposed to being external. It makes me think a little bit about one of the arguments people have for typing in Python and adding it uh -huh. is, okay, if you add types to your programs or your packages and your modules, that the code completer in an IDE is going to have an easier go of it, if you will. Mm -hmm. It can kind of figure things out. And I feel like that that's something that you, I, I would, I wouldn't say without knowing that your stuff has got types in it across the board, but I would, uh, I would guess that that it's kind of a similar process where you can kind of, you know, the architecture a little bit better. Yeah, I, I think so. 
Ty- Python's type hints. I mean, that, that, this is a fascinating topic all on its own. I'm sure yeah. you could do several episodes, uh, <laughs> probably yes. with people who have more intimately connected with writing them than I am. The, the interesting thing about type hints is Python's type hints can express some stuff that the Python type system doesn't already know, which is which is itself interesting. But they're also they're capable of lying. Yeah. You can you can tell MyPy or whatever type hints you're using that a variable is of a certain type, and then give it something of a completely different type, and nothing is going to explode at runtime. Right. Well, unless you are using Pydantic, and then you're using the type annotations to configure a type checker that runs at runtime to make sure you've got the right um, <laughs> yeah. the right shape Isn't... of data. Like it's it's a very flexible mechanism. It's Python, but. Yeah, the the idea of having these type hints in your code being being explicit about making a promise that then you still are on the hook to follow yeah. is a very interesting design choice that I can see why it's gone that way and why it kind of fits with the Python philosophy. But you see this actually as well in... Um, there's a very similar question with um, JavaScript and TypeScript. If you're using... A, an editor that knows about uh, TypeScript, uh, if you're using the Jet, uh, JetBrains WebStorm package, the code completer in WebStorm will often know more than TypeScript does about what type a variable is going to be mm. because it has inspected your code and it's done just that little bit more inference and it's being just that little bit smarter than the TypeScript typing rules are. And so you will find that you will it will happily autocomplete code that the TypeScript compiler will then barf on. Yeah. And again, like every, basically, it, it, when you have a dynamic language and you try to put sort of promissory types, types that are just assertions about what's going to be happening in this dynamic language at runtime, you end up with all these really interesting corner cases. And actually, we don't, I mean, like you, you can write the typing expressions. We don't currently lean very heavily on type hints in Anvil. Okay. It's, I mean, partially, you know, we, we will get there, we will move that way, but partially that actually you can often do as well inferring by actually parsing and reading the code uh, as you can by reading the type hints. Hmm. Yeah, cool. I feel like, you know, we could, like, there's so many avenues we could go down and we already kind of... I know, like, this is a, this is one of these wonderful topics and I hope, listeners, I hope you're holding on. We are just yeah. having a great time here. I hope you're <laughs> keeping up. Well, I will provide a ton of links, you know, not only the talk that you did, but, but you know, all the other kind of avenues that I went down and explored and lots of tools for you to play with. <laughs> Christopher Bailey going down the rabbit hole and reaching back and yanking everybody in after him. <laughs> Come on, let's go. <laughs> We're late. <laughs> <laughs> One of the things I thought about is beyond building a code completer, which, you know, I, I think is potentially a a task that might be a little outside you know the abilities of some intermediate developers they might have a little hard time with it well so yeah i'm going to go ahead and and disagree with you there i, I know you you i like i know you want to take this elsewhere okay. but i don't think it is outside the abilities of an intermediate developer like watch my presentation watch what i did on stage like it was a simple recursive function that having the ast module there means it's not beyond your abilities okay of an intermediate coder Having said which, you just got to get deeper into yeah, it. Yeah. Having said which, it might not be a thing you need to do all the time. There are other projects available. Like, 
my introduction to, you know, really bashing around with ASTs was, I mean, I took some compiler courses at university, but my proper hands-on introduction was writing a code completer because writing a code completer is what I needed to do at the time. Okay. But there are all sorts of other fun things, which I think is where you were going with this. There are all sorts of other fun things you can do once you realize, oh, hey, I've got a parser. I can throw it at any code I like. Yeah, one of the things that kind of came up in my search was that in the AST documentation from Python, mm-hmm. uh, docs.python.org, abstract syntax trees, they had this link to a kind of a, a I thought, of interesting name site, um, which was called Green Tree Snakes. And it has examples of, uh, you know, getting to and from ASTs, modes, fixing, and so forth. Whole section called Meet the Nodes, and then working on the tree. And then at the end, it had examples of working with ASTs. And so they had a bunch of, like, different things that you can kind of check out. And we already mentioned the, uh, you know, AST Explorer that you can kind of play with a little bit. And then one of the things they brought up was a linter, Mm. And the one they had as an example, which I think it looks, I just love the name. It's called Belly Button. So (laughs) it's just a great name for a linter. So what does this thing do? So a linter, you know, if you're not familiar with the terminology, uh, you might have heard of things like Flake 8 or PyLint. But basically the idea is that it will go through and look at your code. And I I don't know exactly if it auto is auto-formatting the way something like Blackwood, but in many cases, it's basically highlighting what it considers to be potential errors or potential things that are not following, you know, the, some of the rules of Python. Yeah. And there's, a, you know, a set of rules that you kind of can dig into from there. And so that's, yeah. So like if you, if you used a variable before you defined it, yeah. say, okay, then, then, then a linter could complain about that in a way that, yeah, the, the Python compiler won't until runtime. Yeah, and so you—that's the. I guess that's a perfect example of the kind of thing that you can absolutely do once you've got a parser, because like the prospect of like how would I detect undeclared variable use in a Python program if all I've got is this bag of strings is really scary. Yeah. But actually, if you have an AST, then walking over it and detecting that is actually going to be pretty straightforward. Yeah. So anyway, I think it'd be a good project to kind of look at. Another one that, uh, you know, we mentioned Black already, the the code formatter, um, which kind of is auto, auto you know, yeah. reformatting your code. Well, the wonderful thing about that is that's also, that's also completely driven by, by the AST module, as at least Last time I looked at uh, how it worked under the hood, it just reads in your code, parses it. There's a there's a mod- mode to AST that uh, preserves the comments, and then just like it gets an AST, and then in its opinionated way, does the reverse and writes out text of the Python program that ought to produce that AST. Yeah, uh, which is like that's a brilliant example of how to use it. I mean, yeah, hair raising, but brilliant. <laughs> yeah. And then the other ideas that were in there were maybe like a, a testing tool is going to potentially dive into the same kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. They referenced uh, PyTest. Oh, PyTest is is a is a balmy one. PyTest. So if you if as a listener, if you haven't used PyTest, it's it's honestly I'm I'm going to say it. It's a bit unpythonic. <laughs> All okay. sorts of magic happens when you write a PyTest test, like. The way you write a PyTest test is you define a function that begins with the word test, yep. and then the arguments of that function 
the name of those arguments will call forth test fixtures that you've defined earlier in your program and implicitly, not explicitly, will cause those text fixtures to set up uh, and pass their values in when you when that test is run. It's it is bonkers. And of course, it, it does this by really heavy inspection of the AST and bytecode of the program that you're running with PyTest. It, it's, it's a bit brain melty. But yeah, uh, talk about like writing a code completer is absolutely <laughs> something an, interme- an intermediate comp- um, programmer could tackle like this afternoon as an interesting project. Yeah. Writing something like PyTest makes me oh, want no. to climb a tree. <laughs> there's, yeah, there's a massive <laughs> team behind it. <laughs> But I thought of like you know something that could search for you know potentially security flaws. Oh yeah, um, I mean there's things a, like that. Yeah, yeah. So at oh gosh, at uh, PyCon this year, I actually met up with oh I'm they're going to be so annoyed that I can't remember the the name of the company and give them free advertising here. But it was one of these companies that does like code analysis for security vulnerabilities. Yeah, and actually one of their developer advocates. Uh, I ended up talking to was a former like uh, JVM Java Virtual Machine core developer, oh, wow. and so she'd been right up in like the parser and compiler <laughs> that drives the JVM, and now she was like working at working it from the other side of like okay, let's parse through your code and you know see if we can uh, see if we can identify you doing anything silly. Yeah, the other tool that we've talked about a few times on the show uh, is something. That uh, it's been just kind of a back and forth with the new versions of Python, and it's this mm-hmm. thing called friendly tracebacks, which is a really great kind of REPL alternative REPL tool that for beginners can really help you learn through making mistakes. <laughs> mm-hmm. You know, it's giving you a lot more information than just like syntax error or type error or whatever. It, it actually is diving deeper and giving you a lot more information in it. And that code is online too, that you can kind of, most of these things are open in the sense that you can go and you can look at them and and see how they're using the AST module to kind of do some of this stuff in the background. And PT Python and B Python are other alternative REPLs that have not only the stuff we were talking about earlier, the tokenizing and highlighting the code, but also auto-completion or code completion in a lot of cases. And so a lot of these kind of tools, like, I don't know, I, I kind of see how, you know, if you're interested in making like a command line tool or something like that, this it's an interesting area for exploring uh, as projects and really a, a great way to learn more about how does this language function <laughs> and uh, what's going on. Little sidebar because this is clearly you know the the theme of the uh, uh, theme of this episode. Um, All sidebars. <laughs> <laughs> so there's a yeah uh, that that would be a good alternative name for the podcast. Um, so when you're dealing with REPL tools that have that have autocompletion in them, mm-hmm. it's interesting to like if you look at them and try and work out are they actually doing parsing on your code? Okay and working out you know what completion options to give you that way or are they looking at the live objects in your program mm. and offering you completion based on those but it was very right yeah well and often they'll be doing both at the same time so you know you'll be halfway through typing an expression it's using the parser to uh work out what you're typing because it hasn't you haven't executed that code yet but if you are typing x dot it's going to go look you know, in the scope in which you're executing that REPL expression, find out what actual object instance X is, call dir on it, and give you the actual list of attributes of the live object, which is, again, one of those things that's 
it's really great. It can also be kind of confusing. Yeah, that's uh, yeah. Dur has all the extra dunder methods and other things that potentially well, you're like, I'm yeah. not gonna maybe use these. <laughs> it's well, it's not just the dunder methods. It's the way that okay. So th- this is something that often comes up when we talk about something like GitHub Copilot, which is right at the other end of the sort of the smartness spectrum. <laughs> yeah, which is like it feels like, sometimes I feel like it's a better programmer than me. But the problem is I still have to code review its code before I accept it. So yeah, mm, totally. not always my favorite. <laughs> but Copilot is going to like pick what it thinks you might type next. You treat basically treating your lang- you know, your program as though it was sort of a language and you know, write the next line of this poem. Right. And what that means is it's an interesting tool, but it's not a very predictable one. Hmm. Because you don't know exactly what it's going to try and type next. Yeah. And there's a big difference between tools like that and code completers that are really good for using in an editor because if you are in an editor and you are you're writing code you're in the zone you are typing you know three characters and then the tab key because you know sort of almost in your hind brain what your code completer knows about your code and you know already that it's going to be able to code complete this you know, this attribute access, and you, if you've been working with a completer for a while, you start to get, you start to trust it. Right, get your rhythm. You know, you you st- the feedback loop between you and it gets very, very, very short because you, you know, even if you're looking at the screen and typing it, you're sort of type type, you know, up and down arrows to select the right thing and on to the next token. And what that means is that actually, if you're building a completer for that kind of like rapid sort of, you know, muscle memory stuff, you actually really, it's really important to be predictable, uh, to be consistent. Yeah. And one of the things that I find trips me up if I'm using one of these REPL systems that's sort of mixing, you know, results from parsed code completion and results from going and inspecting the object in memory and telling me what attributes it has, is that I feel like I'm almost second-guessing it sometimes, or it's second-guessing me. <laughs> and yeah. like, obviously, like, if I spent enough time with it, I'd get used to it, and so would you. But like, if you mix and match... How in this case I'm getting the information from the real object. In this case, I'm getting the information from my best guess based on parsing your program. Yeah, those are like those are actually very two different ways of doing code completion. And if you're only doing one, it will work and not work in different ways and places. You know, if it's just if you have a completer in a REPL, say that's just examining the running program, and then you know you write a you know you write something that defines defines a parameter to a function and then uses it the code completer won't help you very much because that that variable doesn't exist yet in its world whereas on the other hand it will be much more accurate than a parsing based completer when it comes to inspecting an individual object that already exists in memory because it can tell you the ground truth rather than having to stick a wet finger in the air and guess yeah uh, so yes anyway like uh, i'm just sorry i'm just riffing on these these awesome REPL tools with code completion and like there are many ways to attack various sort of versions of this problem and it's fun to see how other people do it when i was originally exploring uh pylance inside of vs code one of the features it had that i felt was very aggressive was it would suggest things that you had not per se imported yet mm-hmm. and 
it would auto add the import statement for that thing. <laughs> mm-hmm. So it would, it would kind of like say, did you mean this? Okay, well then I'm going to go ahead and just auto import this extra thing. And it's like, whoa, 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 whoa. <laughs> you've kind of like, you know, and if you've, let's say you let it complete that and then you're like, no, I, I, I didn't mean that. It would still have that import statement up there. Yeah. And you're like, whoa, wait, wait, huh? <laughs> and so there's, there yeah. was a, you know, some tuning they had to do to kind of like maybe, you know, chill that out or, or settings that you could kind of adjust, um, which I, I thought that was kind of interesting. Oh, yeah. Potentially, potentially bad <laughs> news. <laughs> well, so, so while we're talking about code completion inside something like VS Code, I, I find VS Code's um, auto-completion strategy really interesting because it, it really brings to the fore. There's this difference in... Basically, if you're in a, writing a programming editor, it's basically either a text editor or it's an IDE. Yeah. So it's either an IDE like PyCharm that wants to know about everything in your project. It knows your virtual environment because it's sitting there because it's got the run button built into the IDE and it's got a live debugger in there as well. You know, It knows about all the files in your project because you've told it about them. And so... You're saying that when we started that it, when you opened up a project, it, you could see it crawling across that stuff with the yeah. progress bar. Yeah. Oh, well, that's... I mean, that, that yeah, and exactly. And it's done that. It's gone... Indexing is, is the term that's used. Um, yeah, indexing. Yeah, sorry. And it will have indexed your entire environment. But what that means is it can be quite conservative because it kind of knows what's going on because an IDE has a high degree of knowledge about your project. Uh, this is why the Anvil is like it's definitely an IDE. It knows more about your project than a typical IDE because it knows what your database looks like, mm-hmm. which, you know, uh, even WebStorm hasn't got to yet. Well, very difficult if you're writing a front-end normally. But... If you're basically a text editor, and VS Code is basically a text editor, then it's all a bit more approximate. So VS Code has these language servers. So there's this protocol, the language server protocol, that was uh, pioneered by VS Code. That was, it's a way that the editor itself can talk to some program that knows how to, for example, parse a Python program or work out what's going on in your Python code and offer code completions. And that's, it's kind of at arm's length. There's this program that's, you know, VS Code can open any collection of files, any folder, any individual file. And it's talking to your language server, and PyLance is is a Python language server. And it's sort of looking over at these files on disk and it's kind of having to guess what's around, what files are actually part of your project, what your scope is, where your module root is. And, you know, you, it can be more or less accurate about these things. But what that means is that because you're in this text editor world, you're kind of biased to being a bit more liberal with your code completion. So something that VS Code will do that I don't, I've never, I don't think I've ever seen PyCharm do is at a certain point, when it throws its hands up in the air and goes, actually, I'm not sure what's going on in your program here, it will start suggesting to you words you've written at other places in your program. Hmm. Whether or not those words are syntactically or semantically appropriate, whether or not that variable is in scope, it'll uh, at the point where your cursor is, it'll go, well, I'm out of ideas. You use this variable name elsewhere in your program. Maybe you mean this. And that is that's kind of aggressive. It can help if it's dealing with a human who's very ahead of the game and understands that they are being given a just like a that you use this word elsewhere sort of autocomplete right. and doesn't blindly trust the autocompleter or no, not blindly 
hasn't baked into their head that the autocompleter always knows what it's talking about. And I, I've come a cropper that way using VS Code because it, it, it's, it's a very different philosophy. It's the, I'm fundamentally a text editor and I, I, I have these plugins that will suggest smart autocompletions, but if I don't have them, I'll fall back to dumb ones. That's fine. Whereas IDEs philosophically will tend towards conservative code completion that only offers stuff that it knows is a good idea. Truly earning the word integrated in some ways. Yeah. Yeah. Well, like that that's the that is the advantage. Like integration has the costs and has the benefits. Has the cost in that it's a bit of a pain to use PyCharm to edit like a random file while you you know you want to edit a config file. Right. You know, I will not choose PyCharm for that. But the, the benefit you get is exactly that level of integration and the things it can do knowing about your project. Yeah. Cool. But anyway, sorry, while you were talking about aggressive VS Code or com- <laughs> uh, code completion, like... No, it's good. It's, we're talking it's about strategy. So, it's all sidebars. Yeah. You, <laughs> <laughs> My friends uh, occasionally have a, a dinner where it's like, uh, whoops, all sides. Um, and, you know, it's no main dish. <laughs> uh-huh. Yeah, that <laughs> so feels like this feel episode. Like it, so it a little bit. That's okay. It's really cool. Well, let me, uh, let me ask you the weekly questions here. Uh, what are you excited about in the world of Python right now? Oh man. So the the thing I'm currently most excited about is just today as we record this, uh Raspberry Pi uh released the so you know they have the Raspberry Pis, which are basically little cheap Linux computers. Yep. Uh and then they've rely released the Pico, which is this like microcontroller uh thing. And now they've released a the wireless Pico and this is this is really big because it's you know this is stuff that's smaller, much more power efficient than a full-on Pi, cheaper like six dollars or something ridiculous, and it now can now talk to the internet, and you can drive it with MicroPython. So I, I have we have one of these on order already. I can't wait to get my hands on it. I really want to have all sorts of little battery-powered Python gadgets around my house that can talk to the internet and then do really cool things. So yeah, the, the Pico W. Yeah, like it looks like around six dollars. That's pretty amazing cool what's something that you want to learn next it doesn't have to be programming or uh, python specific yeah so i think i'm going to answer programming because i've been thinking about programming and i'm afraid that because i maintain a web-based development environment as i may have mentioned like once or twice during this podcast what (laughs) (laughs) really let me tell you about apple so like uh, i i you know i I maintain a very large web application and the thing i'm currently uh, going down the rabbit hole on is like uh, different ways of doing state management in traditional web applications. And like, you know, there, there's, you've got your React and your Redux, and then these all these other kind of interesting other approaches. Facebook have released like an experimenting experimental one called Recoil. It's it, it's combination of like intellectually fascinating and like all JavaScript frameworks, subject to incredible churn, and it's like hard to keep up with, even if it's your job. Yeah, uh, and it also definitely justifies sort of hey, why why did we do Anvil in the first place? Ah, oh, yes, because this is because dealing with this kind of churn and complexity is the alternative. <laughs> I like to say there's right. a there's a dent next to my keyboard, uh, forehead shaped, marked. I am dealing with this so other people don't have to, and this definitely yeah. falls into the strategy. But I'm also totally down the rabbit hole and fascinated by how different people choose to manage state in a web application. So yes, yeah. sad, but that's what I'm learning next. <laughs> cool. So how can people follow the things that you do? So the biggest thing I do is Anvil. That's available at anvil, A-N-V-I-L dot works. 
WRKS. I am uh, at Meredith on Twitter, so that's M-E-R-E-D-Y-D-D. But uh, I honestly, I try to tweet as little as I can get away with. So sure. if you catch me in an unguarded moment there, then uh, congratulations. <laughs> yeah. Yes, other than that, we tweet at Amal underscore works. I have a bunch of uh, really interesting colleagues who tweet much more and much more interestingly than I do. So go check them out. Yeah, you got a bunch of, uh, you've added a bunch of people to your team over the last year. It's great. Oh, yeah. Also, uh, if you're, I've talked about the Sculpt Python, Python to JavaScript compiler uh, out there. So sculpt.org. It's an open source project and we are interested in, you know, if you're interested in this kind of thing, then we are interested in you. Come join our GitHub, submit a pull request, have some fun. If you want to play with the inside of a Python compiler and parser uh, for realsies and be one of these uh, one of these people who uh, understands the pain of the old AST.C and why PGEN is <laughs> a really good idea, then yeah. uh, come join us. Yeah, cool. Well, Meredith, thanks so much for coming on the show. It's been really great to talk to you again. Uh, this has been fun. Really great All Sides episode. Thanks very much for having me. Don't forget... You can get simple cloud data connectivity to SaaS, big data, and NoSQL from Pandas, SQL Alchemy, Dash, and Petal. Learn more at cdata.com. I want to thank Marita Vluff for coming on the show this week. And I want to thank you for listening to the RealPython podcast. Make sure that you click that follow button in your podcast player. And if you see a subscribe button somewhere, remember that the RealPython podcast is free. If you like the show, please leave us a review. You can find show notes with links to all the topics we spoke about inside your podcast player or at realpython.com slash podcast. And while you're there, you can leave us a question or a topic idea. I've been your host, Christopher Bailey, and I look forward to talking to you soon.